Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And this is Jacob Graves at the Pork Chop Express, so just listen up and take our advice on a dark and stormy night, because once a month we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what is on the docket today? Well, if you haven't guessed it, we've got a review of John Carpenter's 1986 comedy starring Kurt Russell as a motormouth truck driver who's perpetually in over his head. Big Trouble in Little China. Plus, we've got a special guest and some really rad recommendations you should totally check out. But first... So uh, we're going to do something a little different up top this episode because we have a special guest joining us. Oh, really? Yes. He is the biggest Big Trouble in Little China fan I know. And uh, I want to bring someone on who can do it justice with, you know, how quotable it is and uh, and, and sort of have that uh, that that fun side of, of, of the discussion. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Carpenter Shop our guest, Max Crawford's his name, and excitement is his game. Max, cash or charge? Oh, gosh. Cash, I guess. I mean, it's not deductible, is it? <laughs> it's an honor to be on the show, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, man. So, so right off the bat, you want to answer a question for me? There were Chinese brothels in the 80s taking credit cards? <laughs> I I think that's where like technology always like starts first is in... Those sorts of districts. <laughs> I mean, that's what decided Blu-ray. You've clearly thought about this. Uh, how many times have you seen Big Trouble in Little China, if you had to guess? I would absolutely say north of 50. But if we're counting sober washes, uh, at, at least 40. <laughs> that's actually that's well, actually not a bad ratio. Well, you've seen it f- at least 48 more times than I have. Uh, so I'm really, really thankful to have somebody in here. Who, who's a bit of an expert on it. Hey, hey, Max. Yes. Quick. What are you wearing? Uh, I'm wearing my Jack Burton uh, white Chinese tank. Of course you are. Yeah. <laughs> Which I've owned for, for many years. I think he had two at that point. He had to have just a change because <laughs> there's definitely when he like slides belly first when they're underneath San Francisco. Uh, he he came out spot clean and he landed on like a pile of fish like he had to have an extra just, <laughs> just or at least double layered where he took one off <laughs> like a scratch layer. The important thing with tank tops is layering. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen. All right, guys. It, we're actually, you know, we're it seems like we're just diving straight in. So what do you say? Uh, without further ado, we we just leave it all behind. And when we get on to Big Trump Little China, let's do it. Well, sure, it was a war. And anybody that showed up was going to join Lemley in the hell of being cut to pieces. Hell of being what? Chinese have a lot of help. And what the hell is Gracie Law doing here? She can't get enough of me. Huh, he wishes. Look, you know me. I'm always poking my nose where it doesn't belong. And as a result, I admit it, this mix-up is my fault, sort of. But I've got it on good advice. That those punks that jumped me and ripped off his truck, the girl they kidnapped, they took over to the White Tigers for a quick sale. Who was she? My fiance. The White Tigers? Oh, God, I'm sorry. If we get over there tonight fast, maybe we can buy her back. A search warrant's too complicated. Violence out of the question. Hold it. Hold it. Slow down. I'm feeling a little like an outsider here. You are. Jack, listen. I need more of your help. I can't pay you today, okay? Oh, shit. How can I? I need all my cash for Mao Yin. And it's going to cost. 
She's got green eyes. Oh, no, seriously? Well, there's an extra to these people. It's like leather bucket seats is double the price. What people? Look, the slow pan I ran over through. Has spirit medium powers like the immortals. His flesh and his bones are atomized. He becomes a dream. What? That's an exaggeration, Jack. I promise. Please, help me, okay? I got a great idea. Okay, so for those of us who haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China 48 times, uh, a little refresher. Jack Burden rolls into San Francisco's Chinatown to unload a haul of live pork from his big rig, the Pork Chop Express. And then he soon finds himself well in over his head as he plays the oblivious sidekick to his gambling buddy, Wang Chi, uh, who's played by Dennis Dunn. And then as Wang attempts to rescue his fresh-off-the-boat green-eyed girlfriend from the mysterious undead Chinese sorcerer David Lopin, things get pretty weird. And uh, that's pretty much Big Trouble in Little China. We've got... It's, it's sort of John Carpenter's... Uh, loving ode to the Hong Kong Kung Fu movie with uh, with also a lot of Carpenter instilled in it as well. It is a love letter to the Hong Kong action, but but there's so much more going on there. It's a love letter to a lot of things. Uh, uh, but Max is our expert. What, what do you think, Max? You agree with that? I do. I think mostly it's a love letter uh, to the Western genre. Uh, specifically, the original screenplay was was actually written or was actually set in the 1880s. And was later adapted to modernize it. And I think a lot of that really comes through uh, from the original adaptation. Yeah. So this is something that I had always heard from, I guess, maybe the commentary on Big Trouble in Little China. But I had always known that it started out as a Western. And I didn't realize that it by the time it got to John Carpenter, it had already been modernized. So I had always assumed that John Carpenter wanted to make a Western. This is because he's, he has always, you know, real Bravo is his favorite film and he, he loves the Western genre, particularly the Howard Hawks, Westerns, Red River, real Bravo, uh, et cetera. Um, so I was, I was kind of shocked to find out that it had kind of passed that by the time it got to him, but it also makes so much sense because he still has those, some of those Western tropes, uh, thrown in here, like he does with a lot of his films. So like, instead of a horse, we've got a big rig, but it essentially, he is a cowboy riding into town, but now he's just a modern cowboy. I'm with you. And speaking of modern cow- cowboy, I never knew that I wanted to see Kurt Russell play an incompetent John Wayne <laughs> because he's pretty much a John Wayne in this movie. And, but he's so incompetent. He, he cannot, he cannot pull the weight that he thinks he is carrying. Not the actor. I mean, Kurt Russell's doing fantastic, but I mean, Jack Burton. He's no. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, he's he's if John Wayne played Stumpy, maybe is is sort of how he and, you know, I think it's interesting that he did. I mean, he did model the character after John Wayne as far as the uh, the kind of the swaggering confidence. And then with Escape from New York, you know, obviously he modeled it after Clint Eastwood. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that he's, he's bringing these influences of Western actors, uh, very iconic Western actors into, into these roles that he's playing. He takes it a, a step further, specifically in some of his line delivery. Uh, he, he'll do these short little quips, son of a bitch must pay. Like that kind of stuff is straight up. He was like making a, a complete like point to be, 
yeah. straight up John Wayne. Yeah, and and even even more than that, uh, Jack Burton speaks in the same sort of like platitudes that John Wayne will sometimes, as far as these like short quips that sum up his entire worldview and what it means to be a man and a hero and responsibility and all this stuff. He is very, very much a John Wayne. And that's one of the things I didn't pick up on 15 years ago when I saw this the first time and and left thinking, yeah, it's a weird movie. I liked it, but I don't know what was going on. Like, I, I didn't understand Jack Burton. And now... At 30, I fully understand Jack Burton. He's amazing. Well, and the genius of those platitudes is he's doing the exact same thing, but because he is Jack Burton, because he is incompetent, it's played for comedy in this like kind of dry King of the Hill sort of way where it's like, I, I totally understand why like as a kid, you might not get it. Although like I didn't see this until I was in college, I think, mm-hmm. and I I really wish this is a this is the type of movie that I would have loved as a child. And I think like would have loved as a kid and then as growing up, getting older, would have probably grown to love more for for those reasons of the things that like like you're saying that aren't necessarily so obvious. Um and and you know, this is this is one of those movies that it, maybe it's maybe it's the perfect example of a John Carpenter movie in a way because it's one that I think really rewards a revisit as far as diving into just like how goofy, but also how well-made it is. Um, It's sort of, it's sort of like the big Lebowski or some of those, some of those actually maybe, maybe more like any Coen brothers movie where it's like the first time around, you're just trying to, because, because everything is from Jack Burden's perspective. Like I remember the first time I saw this and I was just like, I, this is, this is, fun and weird but i i also have no idea what's really going on it seems scattershot and but then like each time i revisit it i like it more and more and more and more because you're diving deeper into and once you've calibrated to where you understand okay this is all from his outsider perspective you know he's uh, he feels like an outsider here because he is an outsider here and and we are put like in his oblivious pov uh, it all kind of makes sense. And that's that's a, a brilliant approach to this story. One of my favorite parts about uh, the character Jack Burton in this film is that uh, in most of these 80s action films that you're going to see, the, the hero, it doesn't really connect a lot with the audience. The audience can't really see themselves in those shoes. And I think with, with him specifically, there's this, an accessibility that other guys don't have. Uh, his His approach, his comedy, his his lack of knowledge of what to be afraid of kind of reflects like reflects on the audience. And in the end, ultimately that's what gives him the ability to, uh, to save the day at the, at the one point. Cause you see that the entire film, he doesn't have, <laughs> he misses every fight almost. And yeah. And, by, <laughs> and the only time that matters is he, he's not afraid to, to catch the knife and toss it back a low pan. Well, it's also, it, it's also, <laughs> he's brought a knife to a gunfight or a lightning fight up until, <laughs> Uh, like it's literally the one thing that he is skilled at. Like he's always trying to pull out a knife and then like there, you know, he's always out weaponed or, you know, he gets an Uzi in his hand and he knocks himself out. Uh, but, but also I think Kurt Russell um, is, I, I think a lot of credit goes to him as well with that, making him, you know, that sort of accessible character. He, he plays it. Uh, in, in such a, he plays him as such a lovable dude that even though, um, because this is a character who could grate on you 
very easily um, with just how cocksure he is about everything. Uh, but, but he seems like the type of guy that you would, you would still enjoy hanging out, even if he's wildly wrong all the time. Yeah. I, I, what I love about Kurt Russell in this role is I, I've, I've never really watched an action movie where the, the, the guy is clearly the action star. He has every belief that he is the action star. And, and by the end of the day, I'm like, I could have done a better job than that guy. It's like if Sean from Shaun of the Dead were really confident that he was fantastic. <laughs> Just the full bravado. Well, and honestly, that that actually played into, I think, part of the reasons why the studio couldn't, like, cut a trailer for it or why they added the initial intro is that he didn't yeah. fit in, the, in what the 80s thought of a, a leading man should be. And I love that, that – you know, even though he may be the the top build guy on the on the movie, this is where uh, where Dennis Dunn really had a good like it was a good is a sidekick movie where the main star is the sidekick. Yeah, absolutely. Dennis Dennis Dunn is more capable in every way as Wang Chi than than uh, Jack Burton, and, and he is. I mean, he really is the hero of this because it is his turf. Also, I don't know what happened in 1986, but your best action hero was Sigourney Weaver. So you had the female, fully competent, excellent action hero. And on the other end, you had like macho masculinity, Kurt Russell, just 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 botching his way through this entire movie. It's like the world flipped in 1986. He's failing up. You bring up aliens. I mean, I think that's another this this movie. It cost yeah the numbers. I couldn't find a, a solid number. The numbers appear to be somewhere between 20 and 25 million. So ballparking around where Starman was, uh, which is, you know, anywhere from it's it's probably about 350 dark stars if we're uh, <laughs> still keeping track of that at home. So could have made 350 dark stars for the 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 price of this. It only grossed 11 million. So this movie was considered a bomb by by 20th Century Fox when it came out. Um, but I mean, it, from what I understand, like they, like you were saying, Max, they didn't really know how to promote it. Um, and they didn't know how to, uh, how to even like present it as a movie itself. Uh, whenever they, they, they wanted, they wanted the cookie cutter, like, here's your action hero. And they didn't want to lean into like, oh, well, we're subverting that and we're taking it this other direction, but, and, you know, and just running with it. Uh, which I think is a shame, but it's also it feels like what's happened so many times, you know, time and time and time again with John Carpenter's movies. And speaking of which, I, I watched a, a little featurette from when this came out, like a behind the scenes making of a little bit. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's about seven minutes long. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, John Carpenter calls this his 11th film, which is counting the two made for TV movies that we skipped over, Chris. I feel like that makes them to do's. Um, I, I mean, we have been planning to do Elvis at the end of the series because I didn't want to go out on a sour note with the ward. I haven't seen the ward yet, but you don't know that I've, it's going to be sour. I don't I, know. That I know. Either. I, I know. I know. But from everything <laughs> I've read and heard, it, it could be. So I want to go out and I want to go out with with Kurt Russell as well. Like so the plan yeah. right now is that we we do the ward and then we'll do Elvis and then finally body bags. Uh so that we actually have John Carpenter against whoever our our ultimate badass is um facing Look, them. But but he he clearly considers someone's watching me as one of his films. Or he did at the time. I mean, we'll we'll see. I I actually have someone's watching me sitting on my shelf right now, the DVD. 
Um, so I, I'll give it a watch. We will consider it. We'll see. We'll, we'll see how, how that goes. Um, to be determined. The other thing about that featurette is uh, Kurt Russell sums up pretty much my opinion on the whole movie, which it is a ton of fun and totally worth your five bucks, which at the time I'm sure he meant the price of a movie ticket. But now I'm saying the price to like rent it on Google Play or something like that. OK, yeah. Now I, I know what you're this uh, this featurette that you, you watched on YouTube. This is on the, the Blu-ray as well. I know what you're talking about now. And, and you know, I, I have to agree with him. Like it's this is a you know, it's it's not a terribly long movie. It's 99 minutes, which feels to me like the exact adequate amount of time for the sort of action comedy thing. Um, it's, it's a whole lot of fun. Like, like I said, like it's, it's one that continues to grow on me each time I revisit it. So um, I, I was super pleased with this, uh, with this rewatch. And I'm always like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm one of those people that I, I feel like the first time I watch something, I'm almost, especially if I like it, I'm almost afraid to go back to it. Because I know it's going to move one way or another. It almost never stays exactly the same. Yeah, there's very few movies that, that, that just are the same every time you watch them. And usually if it's the same, it's kind of negative. It kind of brings it down for me. Yeah, and, and so with some of these John Carpenter movies that I already love, as we're going back and we're diving a lot deeper and we're getting more critical, I have been a little afraid to put on that hat going in and watching it. And, and so far I've been pleasantly surprised that, uh, they, they hold up or even surpass my recollection. Um, and, and this is no exception. And, and I mean, it is like, it, it does feel sort of out there for what John Carpenter had done up until this point. And I, I feel like we keep saying that, but he is still in a growth moment here. Um, I mean, the next thing to come up is, Prince of Darkness, which we already talked about in episode two, uh, which was sort of a result of this movie doing so poorly that he just made a very small film. And that was sort of a reset for him. But I mean, this this feels like once again, the culmination of everything he's been working towards while still having those John Carpenter little nuggets. I mean, you've got once again, you've got a, a moment where. Uh, someone throws a shotgun at someone. Jack Burden throws a shotgun to Wang Chi at one point, which, you know, he ripped off from Rio Bravo, but he he put it in Assault on Precinct 13. He put it in Escape from New York. He's put it all over the place. As someone who has watched it uh, many, many times, I definitely, when I do rewatch it, I'm trying to uh, focus on a few different things. And one of the things I've picked up here recently when I was prepping for this was a lot of the philosophy that was behind it, which you see with Egg Shin talking about or you hear Lopan talk about. And it's really interesting how he was able to bring that kind of that uh, Eastern culture into like the Western action movie. Also, I mean, something that and this is probably because we just came off of Starman, but something that I uh, I really zoned in on this time is is the comedy. And, and also because we've been doing this whole sort of mostly chronological thing with John Carpenter's movies. And I think even in Starman, I was harping on the fact that you it was probably the funniest thing that we had seen from Carpenter up until then, not even thinking about the fact that this was coming up next. Um, so, I, I mean, there is still this, yeah, this momentum in his career, it feels like where he's, he's constantly is moving forward. And, um, this, like, I, I just love the fact, you know, thinking about the fact that how dark escape from New York was as far as like, it, it's a pretty, it's up there as it's perhaps not his most cynical film, but it's up there in that running, I think. And, and then to get him back with Kurt Russell and they turn out something like this, 
is just a gym to see that like they can have fun together and they can do something like this and they can, you know, they, they work on multiple levels. It's not just all, uh, sort of darker, more cynical brooding, brooding stuff. They can, they can, you know, goof off and make something that's just, it's a, it's a exciting, fun popcorn movie. Yes. And, and to talk about it coming from Starman, you zoned in on the comedy. I zoned in on the relationship between Jack Burton and uh, Kim Cattrall's character, J- Judy Law. What was it? Gracie, Gracie Law. Law. Gracie Law. Uh, was she a lawyer? Did I make that up or did I just hear the word law and assume she was yeah, a lawyer? Yeah, she's, she's a lawyer. Don't, don't panic. It's me, Gracie Law. Yeah, she's, she's a... Uh, <laughs> she's a lawyer named Law? That's what I would expect. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, let's, of course. No, it's great. Yeah. I, I will say I wish there was a little bit more of her um but oh, that would be but that would be a different movie as well i mean i think yeah. you either you either have to add like 10 to 15 minutes to it or you have to kind of rearrange like you if the the problem with that with this scenario is you know i was talking about the we're we're in burdens like kind of crazy mindset throughout the whole thing. If we were to introduce her as more of a conventional love interest or what, I mean, or like, I mean, I think what she is here, she's that Hoxian. She's the Hoxian female once again. Um, and, and a pretty damn good one. It's, and, and so to the reason that I want more of her is just because I think Kim Cattrall is that good. And also the character is presented in a way that's, that's that good, especially for, once again, an 80s action movie. I don't think she's been in anything else I've ever seen, but she's great in that. Like, I really enjoy watching her, and I don't know if it's it's because I, I could feel the hawks coming through John Carpenter. But um, she was spunky, and she was nice. I yeah, it. she's really good. You you don't watch Sex and the City, Jake? That's, yeah, I was going to say, she's, she's in Sex and the City, man. No, but I, I, li- I liked her character. Now, the, um, the, the, um, the other green-eyed girl. Mao Yin? Mao Yin, yes. Not really much of character in this movie. Is she a MacGuffin? She that's exactly what she is. I mean, she's she's the thing that we're chasing down so that we can get into the depths of the sewers of the underbelly of Chinatown. Um that's ultimately, you know, how how she functions. Um and and so it's uh I, what what I found and I don't know why it hasn't like really struck me as odd until this time, but the when it takes the turn where uh, Lopan is like, oh, I'll have two wives. Gracie Law, you have green eyes. It's like, well, couldn't you have? You could have. You could have probably found other women if you're going to. If it doesn't have to be strictly an Asian woman, you could have probably found like multiple. It's been wives. around two thousand three hundred years, and this is the second green eye woman I've ever seen. The first two thousand years, I wasn't looking very hard. Should have gotten out of Chinatown more. Also, I love that Lopan's been around forever, and he's just in Chinatown. He's not in China. He's like, I'm going to go to Chinatown. Yeah, I mean, I I always assumed that he's only been there the past like, you know, hundred years or so. I I mean, I assume I assume David Lopan hasn't been there for the full two thousand plus years, but you know, just came over with like the the migrant workers who came over when kind of the Chinatown of San Francisco was built up, either with the mines or with the the railroad, um, something yeah, like that. I, I think Egg Shen on his tour bus talks. A little bit about uh, how the city was built or, or migrant workers coming over. But that leads into something that I wanted to talk about. How much do you think the studio's inability to market this film was the amount of Asian culture, or pseudo culture, whatever you want to call it, uh, Chinese mythology influencing and permeating this movie? Like even from the start, the 
what is very clearly a tacked on scene at the beginning with Victor Wong explaining part of the plot and building up Jack Burton. I did not like that scene. You know, it's funny. I, I didn't know too much until like diving in a little bit more into the, the history of it. I, I knew that that was tacked on before I ever read anything about it because like, honestly, in my mind, when I think the beginning of that movie, it's always just the 18 wheeler coming over the hill and Jack Burton mm-hmm. on the CB. It always, every time I watch it, I forget that egg shins there in the beginning. And it like hits me with like, Oh yeah, it's the weird, like it's the reverse of the, like the, the psycho thing tacked on at the end. Um, and it doesn't even make yeah. sense because it's like, they're trying to salvage him as a hero, I guess. But then that doesn't, make any sense because in a strange way he is the hero shooting shooting lightning out of his hands at the beginning because chinese mythology or chinese magic it spoils part of the movie because you want it to kind of slowly go into that and be a shock when the uh three storms come down and that's not the case yeah I, i don't think john carpenter wanted it i don't know if it was in the script before he got it no or it wasn't it was, I mean, okay. because the, the studio, from what I understand, the studio was concerned, like the studio handed the script to him more or less in the condition that, uh, that he shot it. And, and this was, uh, written by, uh, W.D. Richer, who had, he wrote and directed, uh, Buckaroo Bonsai. So he's, he's the one that adapted to basically adapted it into modern day. And it's, I mean, on the page, from what I understand, it was very much, very clear Jack Burton is a buffoon and Jack Burton is not really the hero. So they handed that to John Carpenter and he was like, okay, yeah, I can make this. And then whenever they saw, you know, dailies or saw, saw an assembly cut, um, suddenly they were like, oh, well, this doesn't, this doesn't seem to be what we thought it was going to be. And, and, and suddenly they, they get concerned. To some extent, I understand that, but there was so much in there to like. I mean, did what about like the special effects? Did you think they worked? Did you think they were good? Because I know this is a little brighter than some other John Carpenter movies that we've seen so far. Just color palette. It it is and it is. I mean, it's still Dean Cundey. This is and this is unfortunately the last Dean Cundey movie, the last John Carpenter Dean Cundey movie with them together. Um, from here on, for the next few. Um, it's the guy that shot Christine and Starman. He also shoots, he shoots Prince of Darkness. He shoots They Live. And I don't, I don't think he shot anything into the nineties. Um, and oh no, no, I think he did in the Mouth of Madness as well. Um, but this, like it, it's brighter in like, it feels, it feels accurate for sort of the, the lighter genre. Uh, but it's still pretty moody. It still has some of that feel that you get in something like Escape from New York. Um, but to answer your question, I think I think the special effects are pretty remarkable. I mean, especially for um, lightning from you know from the time. Like so often, I feel like when you see lightning like that, it feels like the the very stock generated from After Effects blue lightning, and it is blue lightning. But it like it looks really good. I think. Well, and they still found ways to put in some of the like the practical character effects. So when they had the the sewer monster, yeah, you know, felt like it was right out right out of the thing. Yeah, yeah. Was that? And, I apologize. Was that the same? Is that the same uh, visual artist? 
who did both of those two? No, but I mean, that's you're you're right. And well, and then and, and that's another thing that, about this movie that I think the first time around, I, I was not ready for the sewer monster or the floating eyeball or like any of the stuff that comes deep, the head exploding well, deep into neither the was movie. Jack Burton. Let's be <laughs> that's honest. True. That's true. Neither. And again, that, what's, that's what makes him so accessible. None of us are ready for that. <laughs> What'll so come out no more. Huh? It's, it's just like, I mean, because that, that creature is so, when you first see the eyes like behind the, uh, behind the painting and it's like, those don't look like human eyes. And then you see it and it's this weird long faced. I don't even know. Like it's part ape. It's part, a bunch of things. And it's just like, and fully unexplained why fully it fully unexplained. There. And I, I love that. Like it's, it's the mechanical spider in the third act, but it works. I know that the history behind it, I had to Google it earlier when I was trying to figure out the, I was trying to figure out the thing's name. Um, but it's inspired by a thing called a, a urine, which is a Chinese wild man. Okay. Um, something akin to a Bigfoot. Like that's where they think they pulled a lot of that inspiration from it. That I mean, that makes sense. It looks it, – it has a – I don't know, a Yeti or a, that, that sort of look to it. But it is like – I mean, just it, – it's a bold move to just say like this is how deep and well built out this world is. There's just stuff that we, we don't even time, have time to touch on like – there's the the mythology is deep here, and that's that's sort of what it felt like. That's what it well, feels like. And honestly, thinking through like some of his previous films, I think that's where I think I like some of his. He has some successful world building. Oh yeah, by not explaining some of that and just layering on layering of of those kinds of just tiny vignettes of stuff. I know he's not really a tiny vignette, but I'm saying just those little scenes here and there. Yeah. So 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 let me let me ask you this: Did I could see somebody watching this and leaving and saying, like, it was so bad it was good. I don't feel that way about this at all. Like, I feel like it's so good it's good. It's It has intention and it does what it's trying to do and it does it well. But do you see any of the movie as being a so bad it's good? Uh, I mean, I think the first time I, I saw it, I thought it was campier than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, I it's partially tone. It's partially, like, just the fact that... It's it is difficult to follow the first time. And that's what makes it like the Big Lebowski or something like that to me is it's it's one that you only like in hindsight can piece everything together because you like like the dude in the Big Lebowski who's stoned out of his mind all the time. Like Jack Burton has no idea what's going on. And so he's the worst possible person to be leading you through this world. And um, so, yeah, the the first time I thought it was like, it's tonally sort of weird, but it's a lot of fun. Like not everything works, but, uh, you know, it's kind of a hairy mess now. Like I honestly, I, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like it's very structured. It's just very structured in a way that is supposed to be misleading to you. I'm glad you brought Big Lebowski up, another cult classic. I brought Shaun of the Dead up earlier. It's having a slacker as your main character, a recipe for like not box office success, but long term cult classic status. I, I mean, perhaps that's slackers are probably a, a big part of the cult. So uh, that's that's a I, I like this. I like this theory. I'd like to read your uh, dissertation on it. Well, wh- OK, just just a, a quick uh, let me let me spitball it for you. Uh, slackers love slacker characters, but they're also unlikely to actually make it to the movies when it's out. <laughs> Don't help the box office numbers. They see it on cable. Love it. 
slacker uh, slackers pick up, tell other slackers, then it becomes a cult classic. That's the problem why you can't make a slacker movie and have it be successful. My only real problem with this thesis is I, I don't know if Jack Burden quite falls into the slack. Like he's definitely not Sean and Sean of the Dead. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that he's a slacker, but he is. He's a lovable loser. Maybe that's yeah, okay. uh, because because he's very confident and he's very like, obviously, he's a self-employed guy who doesn't have any trouble with, um, you know, keeping his job. Trouble with keeping the wife is another story. But um, he's, you know, he, he's this type of guy who just gets he seems to get in over his head all the time. And but then comes out lucky in the end. I mean, just like, you know what? I'm with you. But but only because he was cool enough not to kiss Gracie Law at the end of the movie. Just like Han Solo. Yeah, he left that scene in the in the best way. But I love as as he comes in the climax of the entire movie with after the kiss they do have in the the elevator <laughs> and like how just the tone the the note of okay, we're in the climax of the action and we're still going to give you a visual gag of the lipstick on his lips, which is just a perfect, like, from what I understand, I think it was Kurt Russell's idea. He was like, Oh yeah, this would actually happen. So what do you say we run with this? And so they, they do for a little bit and it's perfect. It's so, it's one of my favorite, like when I think of this movie, it's one of like a handful of iconic, uh, uh, images and it's like when yeah, I, if you're doing a jack burton cosplay you almost gotta gotta throw some lipstick on yeah i mean you gotta be either jack burton with lipstick or you gotta be henry swanson is my opinion well oh, and yeah. that and that dovetails into into my two of my favorite scenes in the movie uh the the first is right after that when he when he tosses the knife you have that keeping the comedy going every statue falling over and it doesn't just <laughs> allude to the first one you see all 45 statues fall yeah it's and it's just – and everyone just stands there while they fall. They don't move out of the way. They just awkwardly watch the dominoes and it's just amazing. Well, it's it's back in like – it's the perfect sort of – we got – Jack Burden, like I was saying earlier, is he got his one perfect moment to be the, the only action hero that he could be. And then instantly he's back to like not knowing what the hell is going on and being totally confused. That kind of there's, – there's that same kind of comedy that I think is – Sometimes overlooked, like you you see some of the end of the joke on a couple of these scenes, and it's at the very beginning of the movie when they're playing the Chinese Domino's gang. Uh, you realize they've been playing all night, drinking, gambling, and then he's going to go to the airport to pit, like what should be the most important moment of <laughs> of Wang's life. He's spent the the night before just drinking and gambling. It's hilarious to think that, and you don't they don't even go over that part of it that they're running on no sleep the entire movie. Also, am I not wrong about this? Does so? I think he's he's owed a thousand dollars, and he goes double or nothing, and then at the end he pays him triple or nothing. So he gives him like three thousand dollars. Jack Burton hits the road like he just got a fifty million dollar check. Oh yeah, of course, because it's Jack Burton. <laughs> because it's like for him, it's it's a giant windfall. Well, and the other thing, I I have always kind of assumed that. Uh, this is probably not the only, like, I assume that Jack Burton, every time he gambles, he gets lucky like this. Like, that's just sort of, I mean, because that's, that's the way his character goes is. Yeah. For, for a guy who, who has really no skills or talent or, or anything, he just, you can't picture him losing 
even though he's doing nothing to justify winning. At the same time, it's I love how the reflexes of that, you know, him catching the bottle goes right back to the end. And it's this foreshadowing and it's this illusion, but it's like it's the best sort of it's the best type where it's not just like when it happens at the end, it's not just like oh yeah, that's why they showed it to us. Like it feels organic in, in the opening when he catches the bottle, the John Carpenter doesn't cut to like a close up that draws attention to say, look and remember this. But at the same time, that scene doesn't have a huge payoff. He catches the bottle and you're thinking, cause you, it, they prime you with that little bit of magic at the beginning, the lightning hands yeah, yeah. thing. Like, oh, is he maybe going to have some kind of magic thing that, you know. Oh, so you thought, so you you thought Jack Burden had some magic? No, I, I knew I knew Jack Burden didn't, but I thought maybe Wang had, had some magic. And uh, because I forgot, it's been a while. That's why I, I don't like that that very intro with having the, the hands and everything. That's It messes up your percep- perception of the movie. And it messes up your perception of how cool it is that he catches that bottle and that he, like, it, it's, it throws the movie off. All right, guys, it is time once again to score the score. And Jacob, remind me, how do we score the score? Hmm. Is it out of a score? It is. So on a scale of zero to 20, we're going to we're going to try to rank the score for Big Trouble in Little China and a few things to think about here. Uh, so this is once again, John Carpenter working with Alan Howarth, who he worked with on Christine and Escape from New York and Halloween three and Prince of Darkness. All these movies that we've, we've talked about before, he's working with him on They Live, which is coming up on the next episode. Um, and I, I think his collaborations with Alan Howarth are among some of my favorites. Um, and, and this one's this one is uh, no exception, I think. I mean, it's got it's got some great stuff. It's once again got um, I mean, I, I don't know, for me, 80s Carpenter uh, soundtracks are some of the best because they just they feel like video game soundtracks in the best way. I think we mentioned mm-hmm. that on Escape from New York, but this one once again, I mean that Pork Chop Express theme in the beginning, it has this like it sounds to me like what I imagine Rocky Four feels like. Please, <laughs> I've never seen Rocky Four. If that makes any sense at all, <laughs> to to me the 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 Pork Chop Express theme is the one that plays while he's talking on the. Uh, CB, and then when he shows up in Chinatown as unloading pigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, it sounds like the fake guitar from like a a late '90s PlayStation or Nintendo game. Yeah, but, just but like, that's that's what I'm saying. It it feels like or like or or some like fighter pilot game or something like that. Like yeah, yeah. It it just it um if you know that the soundtrack from uh Excite Trucks. I don't. It's like <laughs> I do not. It's like Excite Bike, but they had trucks. Okay. It was a like a launch Wii title. So if you're asking, are you asking me to score it out of a score? To score the score out of a score? Yeah, I'm. I'm asking you to score the score out of a score. Uh, keep it. Yeah. Keep in mind. Hold on. A couple other things here. Keep in mind. I would like to include the Coupe de Ville's song that comes at the end. Basically, the Big Trouble in Little China theme song that includes John Carpenter's nice baritone voice singing along with uh, Nick Castle singing backup as well. Truth is here. 
I know we don't always include more soundtracky pieces, but I think with this one, it is an original piece. And it is it is Nick Castle, John Carpenter, and uh, Tommy Lee Wallace together. And they've been so integral to all of these movies. Um, so them together as the Coupe de Villes, I think, I think we should include that in, in our judgment here as well. So... And that's the one that plays over the credits that, yeah. that says Big, Big Trouble in Little China. Trouble, yeah. In Little yeah. China. Yeah. Well, I don't even need to include that. I'm just going from the actual movie. I, I'm not going to give it a 20 because I can't like sit down and hum even a bar of it. But it is every single thing I want from a John Carpenter score. It feels like a John Carpenter movie. It is exactly the era I like of John Carpenter sound and any movie that does anything like this. I'm I'm probably going to enjoy the movie just because it is what I feel like these types of movies need to sound like. Yeah. And it does everything it's supposed to do. I, I'm still going to probably give it like an 18. Oh, wow. 17, 18, 19. I think it's great. It's, it's everything I want. You faked me out. I thought you were going to be like, oh, it's like a 14. No, no. I think it's really, really good. Even though I can't hum hum any of it, that that's not the mark of that is bonus points. That's what gets you to maybe a twenty is yeah. is you could play it in a different movie and I would go oh that's the theme. I, I probably wouldn't even recognize it, but it's exactly exactly what I want it to be, and it and it gives me that warm fuzzy inside that I'm watching a John Carpenter movie and this is this is this is cinema. This is what I like to watch at the movies. All right, what what about you, Max? I feel like being the guest on here. I, I want to go off a different scale because. Naturally, being the Big Trouble fan that I am, I'd give it a 20 out of 20, but that that's not fair. So I'd give it a uh, five out of six demons that you could hold inside a six-demon okay, bag. fair. Uh, <laughs> Only five demons? Yeah. I mean, six demons would be that Kurt Russell also sang on the track. That That's really oh the gosh. only thing that really could have pushed it pushed it to that further envelope. Well, you, you, you might be giving uh, Elvis a, a six demons. I guess that leaves me... Uh, to, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to our tried and true score because that's what I know. That's my comfort zone. Um, for, for this score, one of the things that stands out to me is, uh, it feels very much like a John Carpenter score from the eighties. Uh, but I, I think the thing that I'm most impressed by is he found a way along with Alan Howarth to create sounds that feel slightly of you know this this chinese feel but it's he's not doing the oriental riff he's not doing anything that feels like a cartoony terrible jingoistic sort of um sort of take it's more homage so it's it's john carpenter still sounding like john carpenter with a little bit of this eastern influence thrown in in instrumentation of that sort of thing um and and i'm really impressed by uh, by that. With that said, it's not my favorite of their collaborations. So I'm going to give it, I'm mean, still coming out strong, but I'm going to give it 16 out of 20. That's fair. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a great, uh, it's, it's got a lot of great tracks. It's got a lot of great, you know, John Carpenter has amazing underscore. It's, although it's, it's not one that I'm necessarily going to, uh, 
going to put a bunch of them on a like playlist to play in the background for work necessarily. I mean, there are, there are a few great tracks of like some nice driving bass or that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, overall I think, I think it's perfect and fits the, fits the, the film perfectly. All right, guys, let's move on to the Clash of the Carpenter. And this is uh, this is a segment I am super excited about for this episode. So uh, each episode, we take a badass from the John Carpenter movie we are discussing and place them up against our reigning badass. And it's sort of a a episode to episode tournament. So we began with Kurt Russell's R.J. McCready. Uh, and he went on to defeat uh, Victor Wong's professor. Egg Shin? No, not Egg Shin. Professor Barack oh. in the film that comes after this, Prince of Darkness. Uh, and then the creepy innkeeper, Mrs. Pickman, in In the Mouth of Madness. And then Bomb Number 20 from Dark Star. But then R.J. McCready's reign came to an end as he had to turn it over to the shape who defeated him when we discussed Halloween. And then from there, we had a lot of turnover. It, the shape was defeated by Christine from Christine. Christine was defeated by the entire clan from Assault on Precinct 13, who was then defeated by Blake and his gang of saber-wielding sailor lepers from the fog. Which brings us to the return of Kurt Russell, who won back the title as Snake Plissken in Escape from New York. So on the last episode, we had a Kurt Russell versus Jeff Bridges death match between Snake Plissken and Jeff Bridges Starman from Starman. And we decided that Snake Plissken would not just defeat Starman, but actually help him get back home to his home planet and not have to kill him off. So now we are left with a very interesting decision. So we've got a Kurt Russell on Kurt Russell fight here, guys. We've got Snake Plissken versus Jack Burden. But wait, there's more. A mysterious figure emerges from a thick fog wearing a giant sombrero. It's RJ McCready? That's right, guys. We have a our very first battle royale. We have three Kurt Russells going up against each other. I don't know where he came from, but RJ McCready has emerged. Well, I, I think I think he must have just come back because the because of the timeline. We had it all out of sync reviewing the thing first. This is this is just prime 80s Russell Russell Russell. We got a Russell and Russell and Russell. So, uh this is this has got to be the hardest clash of the carpenter we've ever had, guys. This is just the this is just a Kurt Russell tussle. <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, so, I mean, I have a few theories on how this could go, um, but I'm also open to persuasion. What do you guys think? Uh, look, so Snake Snake Plissken probably going to win. That that's that's my gut instinct, just because he's good at killing the bad guys. Yeah. But R.J. McCready held his own against aliens. Yeah. And you have. Uh, not just aliens, but a, a creature that could take any form. I mean, R.J. McCready and Snake Plissken are two guys who are primed for survival. That is that is what they do. But Jack Burton did kill a 2,000-plus-year-old Chinese god, essentially. <laughs> yes. They have strong resumes. It's all a matter of how you, the perspective that you look at it. Actually, I think it's all in the reflexes is what that's really come to show. <laughs> so are you, uh, well, Max, is that your vote? Are you going with Jack Burden here? Absolutely not. No, it's it's Snake Plissken all the way. Okay. Why? How so? Snake Plissken is an elite trained soldier. 
And regardless of, of any kind of luck that Jack Burton could get, uh, I think I think Snake could take him. Uh, on McCready, on McCready's end, uh, he was just more – he made the best out of that situation. But if we're going into a true battle and everybody has a chance to prepare, I think you're going to have – I think you're gonna have Pliskin win every time. You you think Pliskin can get away from that flamethrower? I forgot he had a forgot he had a flamethrower. <laughs> I'm also there's a really good joke about I'm I'm not gonna make it, but just because it's a body snatchers like style. So like mm-hmm. I think like you could actually if you're in McCready's like like canon realm, like you could actually have all three of these guys fight. Yeah, <laughs> this could actually happen. Yeah, that's I, I need clarification before I answer. Where is this taking place? Where is this fight at? What's the arena? I, I think home turf matters. RJ McCready can fight in the snow and, and Burton can fight in Chinatown and probably anywhere because he's so damn lucky. But Snake Plissken trying to fight anyway. I mean, the tools are different, too. They have different tools. I, I think Snake Plissken is going to be perfectly fine in, in the snow. I mean, he 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 came in these like his fatigues were snow camo. So yeah, wasn't he in Siberia? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I I don't think I don't know if R.J. McCready has any sort of uh, any sort of advantage there. Here's here's where I, I I I've got two ideas here, and I really haven't decided which way I want to go. I think either R.J. McCready and Snake Plissken team up against Jack Burton, or R.J. McCready and Snake Plissken go against each other first, seeing Jack Burton as not so much of a threat. They wear each other down, and then Burden comes in in the end, pops them with knives, and he is just the dumb, lucky victor. That's sort of more where I'm leaning right now. I don't. Does he have that much luck? I think he does. I think he does. He's no, got a six-demon bag full of the luck. The first time he shot somebody, he was visibly upset. How do you think he could handle shooting two of his doppelgangers? Well, that was my, my first question to Chris when, when asked about this was, does 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 Wang count as his weapon? Because then that would be that would be formidable. But if it's just him showing up and accidentally trying to fight his way through it, I don't think he's got a shot. Uh, no, I don't think I don't think Wang is there. Um, yeah. I'm I'm going. That would That'd be two folks. I'm going. I'm going. Burden. I am giving it. I which is not what I expected to come out of this. Look, but I, I got to be practical. I'm going Snake Pliskin. So we got to bring it to. I mean, we got to get get a tiebreaker vote. Or, or it's a three-way and we got it. Max, where where do you come out on this? You brought up the best point, and it's that flamethrower. And I don't know if you can dodge it. I, I'm going to have to say I'm going to have to. <laughs> he has guns. I, you know who can yeah. dodge Flamethrowers it. Flamethrowers have a limited range. You know you know who can dodge it, who's got great reflexes. Oh, my God. Jack Burton. I mean, I'm not upset. Whoever wins, we win. Here, here's here's my other thing about, about R.J. McCready. I'm a little worried. Where did he come from? Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. We haven't seen him in a while. He, this might not is be it RJ. Really, is it really? Is it really RJ? Is that's, it really RJ? No, it's a valid. Was question. it? Was it really RJ at the end of uh, at the end of the thing? I don't know. It was suspect. It was. He he drank gasoline. It was not him. <laughs> yeah, you're both wrong. Doesn't matter. This isn't RJ McCready. And and here's here's what I think. I think that uh, the only one who would be able to see through it, Jack Burton, having a lot of experience with the supernatural now. He wouldn't see a little through better it. He would it. have no idea. But <laughs> He wouldn't. <laughs> he might even think he's fighting himself. I would be doing myself injustice if I didn't answer it this way. It's, It's got to be Jack. 
Okay. Okay. You're still going snake. How are do you? Do you have another another theory? Or I mean, I just think. I mean, he's. I think he lucks his way into it. I think ultimately, Macready and Snake they go after each other because they are the more macho guys here. Um, with with different, you know, they're not the same. The same dude. Macready's more a little more calculated, whereas Snake is just survival instinct. Uh, but I think I think they go at each other. They wear each other down with the flamethrower, with the gun, with everything. And then, yeah, and then Burden just gets lucky. Maybe one La- last ditch effort here. I got a last ditch effort. Okay, R.J. McCready taken over by the thing. Who is Snake Plissken really good at tricking over competent macho types, especially those in the military uh, leading him? But in this case, I bet he's going to be pretty good at tricking Jack Burton as well. No, I don't. I don't. I don't buy it. You don't buy it? No, Jack Burton Jack Burton will luck out of it. He's like a cat. He's always going to land on his feet. It, to Chris's point, he wouldn't figure out – he wouldn't understand he was in a fight until after the other two had finished one, one of the other guys off. Yeah. Fine. Look, it's, it's not something I'm upset with. Like I said, whoever wins, we win. <laughs> it's going to be a hell of a story for him to tell on that CB radio. Is, is this going to be the next um, uh, graphic novel you read? <laughs> is that what you're pitching right <laughs> the now? three of them. Oh, my gosh. That would be – I you know, I just want, I just want more of – the Big Trouble in Little China Escape from New York comic book. I hope I don't know if they have any more uh, on on the horizon, but I would love to read more. Like I said, it's 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 so good. I I that's not even my recommendation this time, but I would like to re recommend that right here. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm going Jack Burton. Max, are you going Jack Burton? Going Jack Burton. We're giving it to Jack Burton. Sorry, Jake. You're wrong. It's okay. You're wrong. Okay. Well, that brings I'm still us, happy, though. That brings us to our final category here, which is the Carpenter Canon. And Jake, what what are our categories here? Or what are our options here for the Carpenter Canon? Well, for the, the films that are, are true masterpieces, the best of the best of the John Carpenter Canon, we reserve the term a Carpenter classic. But if it's not quite that good, still might be something good, might appeal more to just John Carpenter fans, then you might give it a deep dive. Or if it's just not a good movie, and we haven't had any of these yet, I don't think anybody's given any of these out. Oh, I, it would be a movie that I I, hmm? I gave a I gave one of these away. Uh, he did, did Escape from New York. Yep, or from L.A. Got it right. You're wrong about that too. Why do you hate Snake? It's okay if you think it's really bad, like Chris mistakenly thought Escape from L.A. was. You might say that the movie is. Just for Johnny's Mommy. So those are our cho- choices. Carpenter Classic, Deep Dive, or Just for Johnny's Mommy. Max, you're the guest. Do you want to go first? Don't leave us in suspense, Max. <laughs> uh, well, this is the quintessential, the only film you should watch if you're going to watch any John Carpenter film would be this one for my recommendation. So it's an absolute, it's an absolute Carpenter Classic. <laughs> All right, Jake, what about you? So I'll be honest, coming into it, I was worried that I was going to get here, watch it again, and have to give it a deep dive. But it exceeded all of my memory, all of my expectations. I really, really enjoyed it. And it's a very unique movie, uh, not just among John Carpenter's work, but in, in cinema in general. I don't know how it was allowed to exist. I'm glad it does exist. It's a Carpenter classic. And if you haven't seen it, you need to go and watch it. So were you sitting at deep dive before you revisited? I didn't know. I knew it was going to be on the on the bubble because okay. I, I remember enjoying Kurt Russell's character, but not really getting it. And this time I was like, "Oh no, this this is great." I didn't I didn't know anything. Yeah, 
This was see, for me coming in. It was in Carpenter Carpenter Classic, but I was afraid it might slip into deep dive. I was like I like I was saying earlier. I was afraid you know it was going to go one way or the other, and it just it shot up even further for me. Um, I and I think it just hitting on sort of the same things that that you hit on like. I, it's one of those where it's like, how, how did this movie get made? But that is, that is also so many John Carpenter movies. And that's emblematic of a lot of what makes, you know, his, his films so good is the way that he, he takes, you know, a a concept and really runs deep with it. And I love this as sort of a yin and yang to, uh, you know, between Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York, having these two films with John Carpenter and Kurt Russell that couldn't be really more different in tone, uh, but both like have two kind of two sides of, of what John Carpenter's capable of. Uh, yeah, it, it's totally it's totally a classic for me as well. Well, then it's unanimous. It is a Carpenter classic. And when you sit down to watch this Carpenter classic and you want to pop open a cold one, Chris, do you have any recommendations for the fans? I do. And I like the way this one pairs with Big Trouble in Little China. So what I'm going with, what I I suggest you pair with Big Trouble in Little China next time you see it, whether you are watching it for the first time or you are revisiting it, sit down with a bottle or a can of Pappy Burleson Wheat Wine by Anthem Brewing Company in Oklahoma City. Now, this is a wheat wine that is aged in Jack Daniels barrels, and it is coming in at a whopping 17% ABV. Uh, with a pretty decent 55.7 IBU. So the reason I chose this beer to pair with Big Trouble is because I think it will put you in the mind state where you are in over your head just as much as Jack Burton is. Um, it is with, with that 17% ABV, especially if you get this thing comes in a bomber, uh, it, this will knock you out. Um, but at something that high, it's actually and and that is barrel aged. I'm I'm amazed at how smooth it is. It has it has notes of kind of dark chocolate and brown sugar, um, and it does pack a boozy bite. But for a barrel aged beer, for a beer this high, um, it's ridiculously drinkable. It's not um, it's not super abrasive. It's not like super heavy on the alcohol. You get more of uh, more of that sweetness, the chocolatey notes to it. Uh, it's a really delicious beer. And I think if, especially if you finish this thing while, while watching along, it will make you feel kind of invincible as well, just like Jack Burton. So I recommend Pappy Burleson from Anthem Brewing Company, along with Big Trouble. Chris, is this the kind of beer that Jack Burton would be drinking? Like, what do you think he drinks? I mean, I think he drinks whatever's available. I think he's, I mean, if he's, if he's in Chinatown, I think he's drinking some sort of Chinese beer. I don't know anything about Chinese beer, so I couldn't recommend a Chinese beer. I, there, there's one called like Lucky that comes in a bottle that's shaped like a Buddha, but I don't even know if that actually comes from China. I know it's imported <laughs> from somewhere uh, and it's not very good. So it, it, it was not a pick to, to even consider to pair with this. I, I, I like your actually, he'd probably be drinking whatever's free. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever's around. He's, I don't, I don't think Jack Burton's a terribly picky guy. No. And actually piggybacking off of your recommendation from the last episode, Jake, of a coffee, I've got a coffee for you that uh, I think you should you should try because I know you don't drink beer. So uh, next time you if hopefully it doesn't take you 15 years again, but next time you watch Big Trouble in Little China, I think you would enjoy it with a nice pour over of Big Trouble Beans from counterculture. Is this another Ethiopian? These are not Ethiopian. This is a blend. It's uh, it's 
beans from Peru and Papua New Guinea. Um, and they describe it as having caramel nut and chocolate flavors. Um, this is like the one, uh, Ethiopian or the one non Ethiopian bean that I use for cold brew quite a bit. I really like it a lot. It's, uh, the, the chocolatiness for me is the thing that is the most present. Um, but it's, it's really solid, really good stuff. Three months ago, I would have told you all that taste note chocolate fruit bull crap was just a bunch of bull and i've started making coffee in my chemex and now i'm like this has hints of blueberry yeah well i mean this it, one yeah, tastes it's, like black tea it's it's very difficult to for, for me still to 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 define but uh no it's a it's a really good it's a really good bean uh look for it, it comes in a little green bag says big trouble big on the front I'm excited. Finally, something I can try. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Big Trouble in Little China is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you have something to say about the film, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at PorkchopExpress at CarpenterCast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. And if you still don't get that reference, stop listening. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring that bright red telephone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. guys it is time for really red recommendations once again and max since you are our guest uh we'll let you go first what do you have to recommend for us well guys at the end of a long day i like to unwind i kick back and i put in this movie roadhouse it's a 1989 classic (laughs) i have watched it over the past four months uh i there's been about over the past four months i've watched it uh, nearly every day, uh, at least logged over 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 eighty times. Easy. Um, there's been days where I've just played it and then played it again. Uh, it's become near an obsession uh, to where my wife will see me put it on and she'll say, "I don't want to watch Roadhouse," and I'll say, "Okay," and then I'll let it continue to play. Uh, uh, I have a, a a strange obsession with Roadhouse uh, so much, in fact, now that where my uh, I've received an autograph of Patrick Swayze. Uh, I have the record on vi- the soundtrack on vinyl. It's it's my jam. It's you know this is actually a, I don't know if you knew this, but this is actually a pretty good recommendation. I knew, knew you were going to recommend this because you've been watching Roadhouse for months now on end. Um, and at one point, were you actually were you blogging these on Letterboxd? It, I did. There's. I went and looked back. There's a ten in a row. Of okay, you just logging it okay. every day. Because I, yeah, I, I can remember like each each day I'd get on and be like, oh, did did he watch it again or no? He watched it again. Okay, and then you just stopped. <laughs> and, and, but I, it kept coming. But no, there there's a tie in here. Did you know that Roadhouse was shot by Dean Cundey, who also shot 
Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing, The Fog, like a ton of the Halloween, um, a, a ton of John Carpenter films. I had no idea. That's <laughs> worlds are colliding right now. Uh, this is. Oh, man. Dreams really do come true. I had no idea. And it's also irrelevant. Roadhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I needed another reason to watch Roadhouse. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. You should reassess it next time, knowing that it was shot by Dean Cundy, who also shot Jurassic Park. Oh, that's fantastic. And Back to the Future. A ton of stuff. Well, Roadhouse is available to watch uh, with ads on Tubi TV. You can rent it or find it on, on Laserdisc at the flea market. And absolutely find it at a Hollywood video. And absolutely find it at a Hollywood video. War Starts Midnight brought to you by Hollywood Video. Jake, what do you have to recommend? So I, I went through a, a bunch that I have either recommended before or or just didn't choose for some reason. I thought about recommending Flash Gordon, um, just also a cult classic with some really cool sets and a couple scenes reminded me of Flash Gordon, especially that neon lit wedding yeah. thing at the end reminded me of some uh like Ming the Merciless, uh the his court or whatever. But I ended up landing back at what I'm gonna go and watch next, which is John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. I know we reviewed it already in I think episode two. Episode um, two, yeah. Yeah, I I didn't have the perspective I had then on where this really fits in mm-hmm. after, you know, coming directly after Big Trouble. And I thought, oh, I'd seen Big Trouble before. I'm good. Um, but like I told you, it's been a long time reassessing it. Coming back, uh, Prince of Darkness features um, uh, some of the same actors from this movie. It's Victor Wong and uh, David Dunn or Dennis Dunn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some of the same actors. And it's just interesting to see where it goes from here. And something I felt like. Oh, this is this is you know what I like from eighties horror when I watch Prince of Darkness, um, but it it wasn't something John Carpenter had done in a while. He hadn't made a horror movie, yeah, since Halloween. That's true. And for something that I associate so closely with the master of horror, I- anyway. Uh, regardless, I'm going to go and watch Prince of Darkness probably in the next couple of days. I suggest you do the same. You can hear more of what we thought on episode two. You can find Prince of Darkness to stream on Stars or rent it anywhere. Or uh, coming out in a couple weeks is a Scream Factory uh, Steelbook uh, release of this. So you can pick it up there too and sit it next to your copy of They Live and Escape from New York and all those other cool Steelbooks. And that that copy of the thing you didn't get because you weren't cool enough. I wasn't. It's a shame. All right. Well, my recommendation this week is going to be another film from 1986. Uh, and, and a film that I think is, uh, I don't know if it's exactly, or was exactly maligned at the time, the way escape from New York was, but it's not considered it's, it's a Disney film and it's not considered among the better Disney films. It is the great mouse detective, which happens to be my favorite Disney movie. Now, this is Disney's take on the Sherlock Holmes story with, you guessed it, mice. Um, it's it's fun. It's silly. Vincent Price plays the baddie as this rat who you should not call a rat named Lord Radigan. Um, and it's probably one of the last Disney movies to uh, feature excessive smoking and drinking. Uh, and it's just, I don't know. This is, this is one of those that I feel like never gets, uh, mentioned or brought up and has been just sort of swept under the rug in between the old classics and the new classics of like the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, if you have seen it, 
and and think poorly of it, I think you should reassess it. If you haven't seen it, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should definitely check it out. Um, it's available to rent at all the usual places, or I'm sure you could find an old VHS copy somewhere next to the laser disc of uh, Roadhouse. But that's uh, the Great Mouse Detective. Check it out; it's wonderful. I one uh, about this being the you, you saying this is the best Disney animated film or your favorite. Yes, I would have one hundred percent agreed with you at five years old because I watched this start to finish over and over like it was Roadhouse. <laughs> I, I just watched this on repeat, and that is not a joke. As a kid, this was my favorite Disney movie. That probably changed when probably Lion King came out. Okay. Um, but as a, as a, and, and now, uh, I pretty much land on Robin Hood most days of the week. Robin Hood's really good, but it's now this one so for me, good. I don't know what it is, but I, I've always loved it, but it's, it only took the number one spot for me, like probably as an adult, like it's, it holds up for me that well. I love it. And the other thing, like it actually, it legitimately terrified me as a child, which I think I also you know, it was it was right on that edge of it wasn't too scary for me, but it was scary enough that it almost felt like I shouldn't be watching it. I'm going to watch this again one day. It, it has probably been 25 years since I saw it. And that's that's no joke. Um, it, but I, I remember really liking it. My mom will swear by how much I liked it. I can't wait to watch it again. And I hope one day we get to talk about, a, you know, a few Disney movies because I really love uh, Disney animated classics. That's 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 my jam. Uh, I the last time I watched this movie was last year, and it was for the first time at Chris' recommendation, and I I couldn't agree more. Oh, really? I loved it. I didn't even yeah. know that. Great. Uh, we didn't talk about it, but I had added it to my queue uh, when you were obsessing about it. I think it was there was some Twin Peaks tie-in. There's something. There's something that we talked about. Okay, we, you had told me to watch it, and I finally <laughs> watched it, and I was like, oh. I, I missed out on my childhood. I should have been shown this as a kid. You know, I didn't really yeah. pick my movies. It was just Little Mermaid over and over again. Yeah, same. You know, guys, there was other stuff out there. Besides Roadhouse? Roadhouse was out there this whole time and I didn't see it. You know, that's the real shame. All right. And that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's cult classic starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, They Live. You can watch it right now on Stars or pick up the limited edition Blu-ray steelbook from Scream Factory. And don't forget, you can catch us in another fortnight on War Starts at Midnight. We're catching up on P.T. Anderson's latest and perhaps final film starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Phantom Thread. It's currently available on all digital platforms and the Blu-ray hits stores April 10th. Join us and special guest Peterson Hill for a chic little chat about the House of Woodcock. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at CarpenterCast.com. And check out our Mothership podcast at WarStartsAtMidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. And speaking of social media and the such, Max, do you have anything you want to plug? Absolutely. Uh, I like to make GIFs, and so I recommend you guys check out my Giphy channel where you can find all the latest Roadhouse GIFs. <laughs> Wonderful. I don't think we've had a guest plug a Giphy channel before, but I'll link to this in the show notes. <laughs> If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts, or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com. Or, if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. 
Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song was produced by Philip K. Dickey and Dragon in 3. Find them at dragonin3.com. And shout out to Man Man for the featured music on this week's show from their album Six Demon Bag. Find more at manmanbanband.com. Thanks for listening, folks. And Max, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Loved being on. God, aren't you even going to kiss her goodbye? Nope. Two or three different tracks um, were written on Roadhouse uh, by Patrick Swayze. I'm not kidding. He wrote some of the movie. He wrote like no, leave that in. Go no, back and tell us that. Dude, it's it's so good. Um, that's, God, so that's really what holds me back from liking it more is that my other favorite movie, uh, the lead star, actually wrote some of the music. So that's that's really it. <laughs> I have an extreme personal uh, like nostalgia to the music and to that opening track, uh, much to Chris's point. Um, when I first saw the movie uh, for the first time, it was in college. My roommate showed it to me and I missed the intro of with with the hands. Mm-hmm. And so I only got that music and that started with it. And that actually between that and my my that same roommate showed me Van Halen. Like I got I got into <laughs> 80s really in a big way from from this. This was like my entry point into like a whole everything else like i'd never seen top gun i'd never seen roadhouse i'd never seen all these other movies until then and that like so big trouble was kind of my entryway into a lot of like different music so definitely five out of six demons in a six demon bag this actually explains so much about you that i i knew but didn't know the origin of this is this is fascinating well and also that roommate uh his name is dirt That's that's his, <laughs> like that is like not his nickname. That is literally everybody calls him Dirt. Just is it on his birth certificate? Yeah. Don't church it up, boy. You know your daddy named you Dirt. <laughs> that that is it. It's it's uh, Austin Dirt Penalto. Yeah, no, he he goes by Dirt. That's amazing. To to this day, yeah. So my roommate's name was also Dirt, so which fits even more so into all of this. The only the only thing that shocks me is that there was a guy named Dirt in college. <laughs> uh. Uh, electrical or no mechanical engineer uh, doing great real real high flyer